1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're joined by Erica Dick, Professor of History at the University of Saskatchewan, and Maureen Lux, Professor of History at Brock University. They are the authors of Challenging Choices, Canada's Population Control in the 1970s, which was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2020. Erica and Maureen, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having us,
1: Claire. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for having us. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about your career trajectories up to this point.
2: Um, Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's Maureen here. Um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Saskatchewan and a PhD at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. I now am professor and chair of the history department at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. And... For American listeners, that's about 25 kilometers from the famous Niagara Falls. Um, I teach and research Canadian history, the history of medicine, and particularly the impact of colonization on indigenous people's health.
0: I guess that's over to me. Now, Erica speaking. Um, I started my undergraduate work at the University of Saskatchewan. I grew up in Saskatoon, but I finished that work at Dalhousie University in Halifax. I did um, master's work in Saskatoon again and then went to McMaster for my um, PhD. And um, I'm now a professor at the University of Saskatchewan and my I have a Canada Research Chair in the History of Health and Social Justice.
1: Wonderful. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how the two of you came to write Challenging Choices? Well, yeah,
2: Maureen here. Um, I had just completed my book, um, Separate Beds, which was a history of racially segregated hospital and health care for Indigenous people in um, 20th century Canada. And Erica approached me, um, so it's, it was her big idea. Um, she approached me with this fascinating project to examine uh, reproductive politics in Canada in the wake of liberalizing legal reforms such as the legalization of birth control and abortion. Um, in 1969, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, that's Trudeau the Elder, famously quipped that, quote, the state had no place in the bedrooms of the nation. Um, And our research um, that, you know, this idea that Erica came up with was to kind of examine um, what happens, you know, with marginalized and racialized folks um, and how the state actually became more invested and interested in what happened in their bedrooms. Um, ironically, and I suppose we shouldn't have been too surprised, one of the government's first moves to get out of the nation's bedrooms was to establish a new bureaucracy called the Family Planning Division. Um, so we each came from our own interests uh, to interrogate how that promised autonomy, um, reproductive autonomy, was mediated by race, ability, poverty, and and class.
0: And I'll just jump in to add that Um, This was a Maureen's giving me far too much credit here. She had just finished writing a brilliant book about the segregated state of indigenous hospitals or Indian hospitals in Canada. And I was in the process of finishing a book on the history of eugenics in Alberta, one of the provinces that had a a legal sexual sterilization act in place, which it had in place from 1928 to 1972. And both of our studies sort of ended in the 1970s. And I think, although I will I'll claim that both of those studies were, you know, excellently done and and they had a nice bookend. But I have to say that it sort of left us with these open-ended questions about, you know, there were these changes, these dramatic legal changes, or they seemed dramatic, that occurred at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s. But it also coincided with, and what we started to see was changing attitudes towards how expensive the welfare state was. How expensive it was to maintain healthcare promises, even education and, and um, full employment promises. And some of those things start to creep into this um, language of liberalization. And I, I was really excited when Maureen agreed to work with me because she's obviously already a brilliant scholar. She's written a number of books and really important earth shattering books that have changed the way we think about indigenous health and medicine in Canada. And it was just truly a wonderful opportunity to sort of bring these strengths together and start exploring this 1970s period.
1: So before we jump into talking about your overall argument and why the 1970s, um, I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your working relationship. I think you're the first pair of co-authors that I've ever interviewed on the show. So how, uh, what was your process like in writing this book together? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You'll just hear a lot of giggling. There was a lot of that throughout our, our experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've both been working on the history of 20th century health and medicine in Canada for some time. So we weren't strangers to each other. And I think we were familiar with each other's work certainly, but the process of collaborating isn't a natural one that we're trained to do as historians. Mm-hmm. So it does require some, you know, it raised all sorts of different questions, you know, well, we can think about these things, but who's actually going to write it? Or you know, how are we going to divide this up and yet harmonize the the sort of narrative voice so that it comes through as a as a single overarching narrative? And I I wouldn't say that we had a clear plan from the beginning, um, but I think it worked very well as we sort of uh, recognized each other's strengths and and really played to that. And so we we did take leadership on different sections. Uh, we sort of. Took turns uh, writing different sections, but I think in the end it really was a very, very rich and collaborative process. And it may be too that some of the texture of the book reveals some of the some of the complications that we encountered as we brought our minds together on this. And we, you know, it's difficult. Some of the material that we're dealing with is very complicated and doesn't have clear-cut answers. And I think that some of the richness of that complexity may have been lost if it was a single-authored project. I, I for one, will admit that I I think I may have seen things differently if I were working on my own. And I think the book is better for it, having put our minds together.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's the first, you know, true collaboration that that I've worked on. And, you know, Erica and I um, come physically, you know, come from um, Saskatoon. And um, so, you know, we kind of shared a I don't know, an understanding, um, a locality, although she was from the West side and I was from the East side, which is better. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we tried to keep those kind of uh, conflicts in the background, but it really was a very uh, rich and enriching experience in, in, you know, my experience at least um, because you get two minds to work on these kind of thorny issues that, don't really you know the the more we toss around these ideas the the less it seemed we were sure of things and and I, I think that kept us you know kind of on our toes and um, open to collaboration um, and like I said I, I found it very enriching
1: well I for our listeners out there I I think um... The complexity of this topic absolutely comes through in the book, but it does not read like it was written by two separate people. In other words, so I think you, I think you did a, a very good job of sort of combi- combining your narrative voices because it didn't seem jarring at all. You know, moving from one section to the next, um, it it had a kind of unified um, author- authorial voice. Um, and that voice at the beginning um, gives kind of a summary of, of what the book is about. And I'll just, I'll quote that here. Um, you write that challenging choices is a historical examination of how competing discourses on global, global population control, poverty, feminism, personal autonomy, race, and gender shaped reproductive politics in 1970s Canada. So um, why were the 70s such a pivotal moment in changing discourses on birth control and sterilization in Canada?
2: Um, well, I can I can start there if you want, Erica.
0: Yeah, please. <laughs> this um, is how we work together. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, uh, you know, I think Canada was very much influenced by you know global movements and concerns such as um, population control, eugenics. Um, decolonization movements, feminism. Um, and in Canada, in the wake of the liberalizing legislation in the 1970s, the discourse of uh, population bomb as an existential threat was, for instance, adopted by neo-eugenists. And it was a discourse that conflated poverty and race and applied it to Indigenous peoples whose communities were, were likened to slums in the so-called underdeveloped world, and and this somehow threatened the nation's future. Of course, the irony was that Indigenous people made up maybe 1% of the population, where colonization had pushed many communities into poverty in in the interests of settler access to land and resources in a huge and sparsely populated country. So the discourse of, of global population control provided a kind of handy way to blame Indigenous people for their poverty because they were deemed insufficiently motivated to control their own fertility. Um, the new family planning division, um, you know, the, the bureaucracy would work with other non-state actors to coerce and could cajole to limit reproduction. And the question became, um, to paraphrase historian Matthew Connolly, you know, who does the planning in, in family planning? And the 1970s also saw heightened decolonization movements globally and in Canada, and national indigenous political organizations and and grassroots red power movements amplified calls for a pan-indigenous nationalism that that likened the discourse of population control to cultural and and physical genocide, and reproductive justice, um, that is access to reproductive health services, as well as as you know, the right to bear and raise healthy children for Indigenous women was often mediated by male-dominated pro-natalist Indigenous movements and the settler-dominated population controllers. Um, by focusing on bodies that are routinely excluded from the 1970s um, progressive reformist discourse, it seems that for some groups of people that the legal changes didn't bring reproductive liberation, but in fact reinforced traditional power dynamics and authoritative uh, structures
0: maureen puts this so nicely and uh, so eloquently and when she said i had a big idea about this really it's as simple as you know there were these protest marches and these women who were lobbying for um the decriminalization of abortion and safe access to birth control and my question was you know who were those women and who were they thinking of when they when they went on those protest marches or when they lobbied in their in their ways? And what I was really curious about like, well, were they thinking about whether they be indigenous women? Were they thinking about women who had been subjects or targets of eugenics programs on the count of you know intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities? Were they thinking about the consequences on teenagers and the changes that would take place in the classrooms around sexual education? And that was really the sort of entry point for us, is trying to understand how different bodies fit into this framework. And, and as Maureen has eloquently put, you know, this is more about retaining the status quo than it is about embracing that liberalizing discourse. And it really, to me, sort of was um, a contradiction from the images and from the way that I had understood this history before, that this was a, a moment of liberation, when in fact, it's very stayed, actually. <laughs>
1: All of our not all of our listeners um, might be familiar with eugenics. Could you take a moment to just tell us a little bit about um, the relationship between the histories of birth control and the history of eugenics, including you know, what is eugenics? Yeah, i'll I'll start on
0: this one um, in part because this is a question that really had us in those in the way that we found a lot of these topics were quite complicated. This is one that really, Kept us going a lot, and we kept going in circles trying to understand that relationship. I had written a book, um, published in 2013, called "Facing Eugenics," which was looking at the eugenics program in uh, one of the provinces in Canada. And in that context, eugenics was um, both a it had legal um, definitions in the sense that there was a eugenics board that was legally mandated to identify candidates for sexual sterilization. In a program that was designed in Alberta. So it had a, a legal space and a legal mandate. There was, you know, there were four people at any time on the eugenics board. And the targets of those sterilization cases in legal terms were people who fit a profile of uh, broadly speaking disability. A lot of that is intellectual disability. Um, some of it uh, also commingles with notions of intelligence. IQ tests were used to determine one's fitness or um, reproduction or fertility. And what I found in that study was uh, there were 3000 people sterilized in the Alberta case um, over the course of almost 40 years. And in that case, um, eugenics has both this legal, but it also has a medical and a social position. But over the course of that program, again, I mentioned it was um, implemented in 1928 and it was dismantled in 1972. Over the course of that program, the concepts of eugenics change. The science of eugenics is criticized and it changes. The legal position didn't change in Alberta, but the ideas associated with what eugenics meant changed. And one good example of that, which sort of triggered some of the complexities in our later book, is that by the 1940s, right after the First World War, There were a number of women in Alberta who were seeking contraceptive advice and seeking even sterilizations as a voluntary act for contraception. So many of the cases that I encountered were women who already had children. These were married women asking their physicians to perform a hysterectomy or a salpingectomy or, you know, cutting the fallopian tubes in order to stop their fertility. Now, that was that was illegal in Canada to perform sterilizations and under these voluntary acts. However, in Alberta, because they had a eugenics law in place, doctors could not be persecuted for performing those acts. And so there's this interesting wrinkle in our understanding of eugenics as a top-down coercive practice, where it also created a legal loophole for women with sympathetic physicians who might allow for a contraceptive choice. And that kind of got us thinking. And that's part of the, the kernel of... Of curiosity, I suppose, that carried me into the 1970s and to link up with Maureen and say, okay, well, if that could be true, then what about understanding the liberalizing discourse of choice? Now everyone has free choice, allegedly. What does that mean? What does that look like on the ground? How do people exercise that? And this is where those relationships between eugenics, which we tend to associate with a top down, coercive, often no choice um, scenario, meet up with birth control, which is. More frequently associated with, but complicated um, with choice and autonomy. Mm. Does that make sense, Maureen? You can. It does. (laughs) Maybe the first time it's ever made sense.
1: (laughs) And the important thing is that I I gathered from reading the book was that um, sort of the history of, of eugenics doesn't stop at World War II, right? This this carries it 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 shifts and changes up up to the 1970s
0: indeed and i you know i think that we we probably could extend that even further and one of the ways that we see that in in this study is the way that choice continues to be constrained by some very clear top down decisions decisions that are it's difficult to see them as anything but coercive And some of that is embedded in the legal frameworks. Some of that is embedded in the way that medical decisions are made with particular people who are considered incapable of providing consent, either due to age or their socioeconomic status um, or their intellectual capacity as deemed by a medical board. And all of those elements continue to sort of cast a shadow over the notion of informed consent in a reproductive space.
1: Right. So who has choice and what choices do people have? How are people, how are their cho- How are particular actors choices constrained? Um, the, the, these, you kind of delve into all of these um, ideas in the book. Um, and the book centers on four case studies, which are distinct populations um, that were affected by population control. And those are, I'm just going to read them out here. Um, first, Indigenous women, second, women and men with intellectual and physical disabilities, third, men, and fourth, teenage girls. Could you tell us a little bit about each of those these groups and um, why did you think that they were in need of more sustained scholarly attention? Um, Maureen, do well, you
0: want to start with the first one? Yeah,
2: sure. sure. Um, yeah, uh, in, Indigenous women's access um, to healthcare. care you know, after about the, the 1920s, was typically in um, these racially segregated institutions, what were called Indian hospitals, that were own, owned and operated by the federal government. And while these institutions were um, originally rationalized as, as institutions to treat tuberculosis, they operated as general hospitals admitting patients based on race um, rather than illness and, and this included pediatrics, maternity, and tuberculosis in the in the same institutions. Um, women in childbirth were particularly vulnerable to coercive sterilizations and birth control technologies that they couldn't control. Uh, politicians and you know the so called family planning experts considered the economic implications of a, a population explosion as too vital an issue to leave to women. So white middle-class physician bureaucrats developed policy based on the assumption that Indigenous women weren't sufficiently motivated to effectively control their own reproduction. Um, In in the early 1970s, uh, 1973, um, an expose on a national public television um, charged that Indigenous women were being sterilized without their knowledge or consent. And, And this predated a by a year or so, uh, similar accusations in the United States. And the the government scrambled to refute the charges, claiming that all the women had had actually signed consent forms before surgery, and uh, bureaucrats later later admitted privately that the forms were written in English and uh, either were never translated or poorly translated into the women's languages. And moreover, the forms in use didn't actually describe the procedure or its consequences, but were simply intended to absolve the surgeons of, of liability. And in a history that played out across North America, at least, um, you know, as white middle-class women worked to change pronatalist policies that restricted access to birth control technologies, in, including tubal ligation, women of color found themselves struggling to resist these technologies being imposed upon them. And, you know... It, in the last few years, similar claims of coercive sterilization were made here in Saskatchewan by Indigenous women under, undergoing childbirth. Um, so it's, it's it's it continues to a certain extent.
0: Absolutely. This um, I'll I'll maybe speak a little bit then about women and men with intellectual and physical disabilities. And here we sort of set our our scope to the province of Ontario in an effort to try to do a more of a deep dive into what was going on in institutional care. One of the things that I think coincides with this period in the 1970s within the history of psychiatry and in the history of institutional care, long-term institutional care, is a real desire to move people out of institutions and into facilities that are described under the mantra of care in the community or large-scale deinstitutionalization. And we know now from a number of studies that people moved from institution to institution more often than they moved from institution to so-called community, whatever that might be, whether it was a halfway home or a sheltered um, home in some capacity. But what I wanted to know was, how does the discourse around choice follow people out of these institutional spaces? And here, to me, was quite an amazing kind of um, shift in logic. So historically, at least in Canada and certainly elsewhere, even in Nazi Germany, some of the key targets and in the early phases of the Nazi um, um, policies around eugenics were focused on people with disabilities, people with psychiatric disorders, people um, who fit into these sort of institutional spaces under a broad umbrella of, of diagnoses. Those were the people who, for whom it was considered okay, legal, and even humane to um, participate in coercive steril- sterilization, even without consent provisions in the first place. Alberta actually had no consent provisions in place for people whose IQs were considered sufficiently low. At, in the 1970s, under the changes in the laws, that story changes dramatically. So now, as people are expected to be moving out of those institutions, the minister of health in Ontario says that it's actually we should we should ban sterilizations on any people who are considered dependent adults. That is, even if they choose to use uh, to have a, a hysterectomy or again a tubal ligation, um, vasectomies were less of a concern in this particular set of debates. They should be banned from having those because it is considered an abuse. Which is interesting because access to contraception and using tubal ligation as a contraceptive method was considered, well, within, by the end of this decade, is a very, very common form of contraception for people, often for people who already have kids, but not just that. But for people who fit into this category, they were banned from receiving that that surgery, even on a voluntary basis. And so there's this interesting switch that maintains and um, sustains a kind of paternalistic control over disabled bodies while still minimizing choice and still providing you know, a, a real buffer between the capacity for autonomy, even in the context of moving people into care in the community, which was supposedly done to amplify and support a kind of more, uh, more autonomous living. I think the next one is Maureen's again. <laughs> the
1: the oh. next one is men. And if I may say, that was the most bizarre chapter of this book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you maybe um, you can tell us why you thought it was bizarre because <laughs> we think so
1: too but <laughs> that's what you think i i think you could just explain what's in it and our listeners will understand <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: um okay so we um thought it maybe it's time to bring men into the birth control story um and so you know, we have a, a chapter on vasectomy and not that white middle class vasectomized men are any, in any form a marginalized group, um, but their experience does kind of reinforce one of the book's themes um, that race, class, gender, poverty mediate access to reproductive autonomy. So vasectomized fathers, and, you know, they were t- typically men who had already had you know, some married men, you know, with a family, Um, they maintained and indeed enhanced their manhood by representing their choice to have a vasectomy as serving others' needs, whether it was their wives' health, um, their family's economic position, or in the discourse of, you know, the population bomb or population explosion, Um, you know, they were serving the needs of, of... you know, global um, population control and and the world's future. Um, Erica had explored the history of coercive vasectomy and eugenics um, in her book, Facing Eugenics. Um, And vasectomies, um, like female sterilizations, had been part of eugenics programs. And in some jurisdictions, vasectomy became a means for incarcerated men to be released. Um, But there's not a lot of historical attention on vasectomy, likely mirroring mirroring the fact that as a form of birth control, both before and after legislation, um, it could be quietly accomplished in a doctor's office. Uh, It didn't require a hospital stay, for instance. As a form of birth control in North America, at least, vasectomy gained attention and popularity in the context of the population bomb. Uh, Paul Paul Ehrlich, the author of the population bomb, His well-publicized vasectomy was, uh, you know, seen as a rational response to a global crisis. Um, But it was very much a white, upper-middle-class, professional male phenomenon, couched in terms of protecting the family's economic future and, of course, saving the planet. Well, eugenists and population controllers, um, they kind of aimed their um, advocacy for vasectomy at the working classes and the so-called welfare classes. Um, who had l- much less interest in the the procedure, and a public discussion of vasectomy emerged in the 1970s, but it was, you know, limited and often in the form of these long newspaper accounts of personal vasectomy journeys, where fathers with their procreative powers already proven reassured readers that after their vasectomy, their sexual prowess was undiminished undiminished. And in fact, their sex lives um, were improved when their wives didn't have to worry about becoming pregnant. Um, Vasectomized men, you know, kind of redefined their masculinity around the familiar themes of of power and control, strength and bravery. And unlike abortion and birth control technologies for women, vasectomy was really a a matter between a, a man and his doctor.
0: It was and, the hardest chapter to write. We we kept um, encountering, like, I I was adamant that vasectomies needed to be part of this story because I felt that there was something there that linked these. But we did keep um, struggling to try to figure out, you know, these guys are not marginalized. They're not fitting with the profiles of our other case studies. You know, have we made an error here in including them? And I, I, I'm curious what you think about whether they deserve to be in there or not, but I'm I, convinced in the end that it was helpful to sort of show some of what was at stake or some of the ways that different discourses were used to justify these practices and the practices um, are shaped, sorry, those encounters also shaped the way that people had choice and the way they sort of lean on the rhetoric of choice as proof of a kind of um, power and, and autonomy.
1: I, I thought it was interesting and I thought it supported the um, point about sort of continuity in eugenist, um, history and discourse over time, because some of the, these promoters of vasectomies were unreconstructed eugenists, like mm-hmm. had, had been in the 1930s and were still in the 1970s. Um, in, in a, a way it, that it sort of came back into vogue again in a way that I found interesting. Um, do you so. want me
0: to say something about the teenage girls briefly? Um, there are the last uh, case that we looked at. And, you know, I think it, I'll, I'll just try to be brief with this. But the thing about the, the teenage girls was interesting as well, because not only did they fall into an interesting category of, you know, sexual liberation for was was sort of part of the liberation movement as well. And and yet I don't think that. You know, the people advocating for sexual liberation, certainly like in the schools or or in, you know, in sort of um, state places, were thinking about teenage girls when, when this came about. And teenage moms was something that certainly made a lot of planners quite nervous about and planners, I mean, by, you know, people working in health and welfare Canada. Um, people working in some of these community organizations that are looking at supporting these young women mothers. One of the things that I think here again sort of showcases the the differences in in here age as a a factor is the notion that um, women and girls who are becoming young mothers are keeping their children because there is this uh, notion of a supportive welfare state that, that can help, you know, secure, these women can retain their sort of independence. They can, can, can continue to go to school. They can get jobs, presumably. And I think there's a real apprehension, a real fear that these women will you know go onto welfare and they will stay on welfare. They will require state and social assistance for the rest of their lives. And that certainly is not a prospect that the government um, in any jurisdiction, let alone at the federal level, wants to encourage. And so the discourse around teenage pregnancy, teenage um, sexual health, and teenage fertility is, again, one of the places that we see distinctions from the discourse that is peddled at, say, you know, 20-year-old and 30-year-old women who might already be married, might already have families, and might already have a male breadwinner provider. And here, again, is just kind of a throwback to this the rhetoric of liberalism that is actually undergirded by a, a real kind of conservative stance on family matters and family planning.
1: So in bringing together these case studies, um, you write that one of the biggest challenges that you faced in writing the book was trying to uncover a quote unquote underlying logic to family p- planning strategies, especially when it came to marginalized populations. So um, you've alluded to the fact that this this may be um, partly a byproduct of, of the book um, being co-authored but I, I wonder do you have any other thoughts on why this ultimately proved um, so difficult perhaps even impossible to do to have a, a why to come up with a kind of underlying logic to family planning at this time
0: yeah I'll, I'll try this and Maureen you know jump in um, I think that one of the things we found difficult was as we sort of got our heads into these case studies and as we started to think through the kind of internal dynamics that were taking place within these subcategories, um, you could maybe see some coherence. And then when you parallel that or you compare that with the next case study, that logic would often fall apart. And we're like, well, okay, wait a second. So, You know, if women are considered and men are considered intellectually disabled, there's a particular kind of logic that applies. But when you assign that, you take that logic and import it over to another, to the teenagers, for example, it falls apart. And so we were struggling to figure out, you know, what parts are we comparing here? What are actually the comparable variables and what are the coherent themes? And Maureen, I think, um, was, you know, really clear on this from the beginning. And I think I, I maybe tried to fight you on this and suggest that there was more to it than that. But I've. I've come around to completely agree that where we can see logic is when we look at an economic framework. And throughout this, I think we can see a consistent attempt to create cost containment when it comes to reproductive health services, to providing reproductive health services in an era of expanding Medicare, um, but also cost containment when it comes to support that goes beyond um, hospital care services. So when we think about those, um, those young mothers who may require social assistance, cost containment is also part of that logic. So every step of the way, what boils down to what is the cheapest solution? And that's where we could find coherence that's where we could see these themes running across these cases and it didn't matter anymore, whether there was a kind of moral imperative to identify groups as in need of support or in, you know, or they already had too much support and maybe they needed some autonomy. Um, the economics became our framework for, for consistency.
2: Yeah. And, um, I think it is perhaps most obvious in the, the case of, um, of indigenous people, Um, you know, the Department of Indian Affairs and then its successor, you know, delivering um, medical services, the um, Department of National Health and Welfare, you know, the bottom line for those um, bureaucrats was always the bottom line. Um, You know, what, how can we uh, avoid expense? How can we limit, especially after, you know, the 1960s, how can we limit state responsibility for indigenous people generally, and you know, to be really blunt, the fewer indigenous people, the the fewer um, claims on you know federal um, coffers. Uh, so I think it it was you know, kind of glaringly obvious with indigenous um, people in particular, and the whole population control. Um, discourse and the family planning experts, whether state actors or non-state actors, you know, they provide um, a kind of um, a a discourse that fits very, very nicely with this, you know, kind of focus on the bottom line. Um, And so I think in in the case of Indigenous people, it, it is, you know, kind of glaringly obvious.
1: So the book concludes, um, with sort of practical application. Um, and it concludes by saying it's time to look for local solutions to global, global problems. Um, in your view, what do you think is, what is the discourse around population control like today and how might it need to be reframed?
0: Yeah, this is a difficult question, I think. And, um, and one that I don't think I have a particularly satisfying answer on. Um, but I think one of the things that, again, sort of um, animated our discussions and kept us going on this project was this notion that there were times that and it seemed even bizarre at times when there were attempts to sort of cite the overpopulation, you know, or like, look at what has happening in India. And I'm talking about the 1970s here. Look at what is happening in India. We better do something about it in you know, in Northwest Territories. And some of those, it seemed like a a real mismatch of assigning a kind of global issue um, or thinking about Canada's place in the world and then using that to exact or to apply a particular policy in a local situation that was a mismatch. And I think that kind of thinking persists. And whether we're talking about questions about population control um, on the sort of global scale or whether we're thinking about, something like vaccine distribution, which I know commentators are already making links between the ways in which uh, vaccines are being distributed around the world, and whether this is also kind of um, subtly or not so subtly a form of population control in itself, in ensuring that certain areas of the world have better access, and some of that just comes down to healthcare economics, um, but that there is kind of a, an adjustment or maybe a an awakening of some of the deep inequities that we face around the world. And when we see that, I think when we take those kind of global priorities, again, I stick with the vaccine distribution example. We also see that in our own backyards, and we can see that in our own local communities. And I think it is useful to sort of take some of those lessons and then think about how we might apply those ethically or in a way that actually draws from local knowledge as well. Um, and I hope that there are lessons to be taken from that. I hope that we can recognize some of these deep inequalities, and that you know, single actions or single policies very rarely um, provide universal access or universal experiences.
2: Yeah, I, I think um, you know that that's a really important point, especially when you know we think of you know the global inequities, but also like you said, local inequities, and you know those who are, who are you know, most in harm's way during the pandemic, you know, those uh, communities of, of color often, and also who are considered, um, you know, and this is in air quotes, essential workers, um, they're essential to the, you know, society continuing to be able to access work from home, for instance, um, and they themselves are put in harm's way because they are uh, deemed essential. And, uh, the, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, they were lauded as, as heroes. Um, and now, you know, the, the inequities in that are, are, you know, very, very evident. And um, so, yeah, as a historian, though, it's, I'm, you know, uncomfortable looking at the pandemic, you know, like what, what the pandemic meant, um, you know, give me, 25, 30 years, you know, maybe uh, come to something, uh, you know, more profound.
1: (laughs) Well, Maureen, um, Erica, we have taken up a lot of your time, and I think um, we've come also to our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on now?
0: Maureen, do you want to go first?
1: (laughs) Uh, sure. Okay. Um,
0: yeah, I'm just
2: embarking on a um, funded research project into the history of Inuit health and Western medicine in the post World War II period. Um, Canada's colonizing relationship with the Inuit included coercive relocations into, you know, the inhospitable high Arctic to demonstrate Canadian sovereignty during the Cold War, um, as well as relocations off the land and into settlements to enable state administration and surveillance, and, and finally relocation to Southern healthcare institutions for treatment as well as, um, you know, of women for childbirth. And the state rationales for these locations varied over time, but essentially re- relied on a, you know, kind of humanitarian motivation, uh, a, per- a paternalistic, um, you know, we know best and it's for your own good. Um, and But the impacts of these relocations were generally destructive to Inuit economy, society, language, and culture, and and these different kinds of relocations tend to be treated separately, instead of as parts of a larger colonizing imperative. And, and of course, these are very early days in the research, but this I think will be one of my focuses.
0: And I'm moving to something a little different. Um, I my doctoral work was on the history of psychedelic uh, experimentation that occurred in the 1950s and 60s. And I'm moving back to that in as as we're sort of facing a psychedelic renaissance, or at least that's what people are calling it. Um, And I'm engaged in two projects. One is a a global history of psychedelics. And I'm working with so far, we've got 22 authors from different parts of the world who are looking at the way that um, hallucinogenic psychoactive substances have been used Historically, have been understood how they've sort of um, circumnavigate, circumnavigated the globe, and what this has mean what this has meant both in terms of history of medicine and culture, um, but also in terms of a kind of ethnobotanical look at indigenous practices and ceremonies around different healing practices that intersect with spirituality. I'm really excited about that project. Um, and it is going to lead into another project that I'm working on as a collaboration. This one's an interdisciplinary collaboration with neuroscientists, psychologists and anthropologists. Um, and we're looking at sort of the, the historical and anthropological study of psychedelics as an ethical project. So how the morals of psychedelics have been understood over time and place. And, and those are very early day projects, but I'm, I'm excited to sort of um, move along in that direction.
1: Well, all of those sound fantastic. Um, thank you, thank you so much for sharing them with us and for coming on the show on the show to talk about challenging choices. Um, Erica Maureen, it was a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Claire. Thanks so much.